But anyway, we're, we're studying Ezra. Ezra. Now, we've, the reason we're doing this is we're moving through the Old Testament. And the first time that we go through the Old Testament, we are going to do uh, First and Second Kings. And then when we get done with the Old Testament the next time and we start our way back through, we're going to do First and Second Chronicles. You know they're uh, very similar, right? And so uh, we did First and Second Kings, and then we took a detour, and we, we took a big detour, man. And we went through the book of Isaiah. We, we sprinted. We sprint through the book of Isaiah. And then we um, uh, uh, did the book of Revelation. And we've been doing that probably for what? About a half a year, uh, maybe. Is that right? Probably about a half a year or, or so. And uh, now we're finished with that. And we're taking up and finishing up or um, uh, going back through the Old Testament. But do me a, a little favor. I know we haven't gone through Second Chronicles, but... Go to 2 Chronicles uh, chapter uh, 36 and verse 22. Go there, okay? And uh, we're going to try and reorient ourselves. And uh, your second page of your handout, my little scribbly chicken scratch notes, that's my attempt to reorient us. And if you will understand the sequence in this second page... And again, if you're watching online, if you email or call the church, we'll, we'll send this to you. Uh, anyway, if you can orient yourself just to these few precepts or concepts in the second page, I know it's chicken stretch, and I'm going to go through it here in a minute. You're going to be so far ahead of 99.999% of the people who read the Bible. Okay, so we'll do that in a minute. But if, when we get to Second uh, Chronicles chapter 36, verse 22, let, let me read something to you. See, honestly, if you want to understand the Old Testament or even the New Testament, but in one way, if you want to stand, understand the Old Testament, which I think you do, because when you understand the Old Testament, you understand that you matter. That's the thing that you should get, that God is supreme... And he went to the lengths of all lengths to get you into the family of God, which means you matter. So that's why I'm so uh, passionate, there you go, passionate about us learning uh, the Old Testament among a, no a, a, a number of reasons. The Bible commands us to teach to you the whole counsel of God. So if you're not getting the whole counsel of God that the place that you go to church, and I'm not criticizing anywhere, if you have a great church and you're getting the whole counsel of God, praise the Lord and praise the Lord for that church and that pastor and those leaders. But if we're going to churches that just give you, uh, you know, the 13-minute uh, sermonette to make you feel good through the week, well, you better watch out. It's a warning. We should be, uh, we should be taking in the entire counsel of God from stem to stern. And we should be teaching that. And shame on us if we're not, as the pastors and the leaders, we should be teaching it. And so here's our attempt to do that. And so we get to Second uh, Chronicles 36, and we read this in the... Oh, oh, here, I lost my train of thought. I'm trying to figure out who the players are. Who are the players? See, that's what we're going to do in this second sheet here. And one of the players you need to know is this guy, this king of Persia, not Babylon. Hold on. Listen to me now. This is important. The king of Persia, not Babylon. Something happens in Daniel 5. We actually get the term handwriting on the wall. Remember that term? 
Something happens in Daniel chapter 5 where the Babylonians are overtaken by the Persians. Not necessarily this Persian king who comes later, but you need to know that the Babylonians are replaced or conquered by the Persians. And here, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that's going to make more sense as we get going too, by the way, that the word of the Lord, listen to this, by the mouth of Jeremiah... It's encapsulating everything here. Now you have a prophet. Jeremiah, the prophet. Jeremiah was a pre-exilic prophet. That means he prophesied before the Babylonian captivity, which is what we're going to talk about tonight. He prophesied before the Babylonian captivity, and Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, prophesies for years and years, and years, and he just does what God says, and he sees zero fruit, nothing that humanly we would call fruit. And then he sits up over top the hill of uh, Judah, Jerusalem, and watches the city in the Babylonian captivity get ransacked, and he writes the book of Lamentations. He's called the weeping prophet. That's Jeremiah. And here, listen, we have this King Cyrus, and the word of the Lord, listen, by the mouth of Jeremiah. See, Persia is not the people who follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you know this? <laughs> they follow after other gods, idols. But here something happens, and Cyrus, the king of Persia, is stirred by the Lord, by the mouth of Jeremiah, the prophet that comes to the people of God and prophesies. By the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says the uh, Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among all of uh, his people. May the Lord his God uh, be with him and let him go up. Now turn one page. <laughs> Look at verse 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, and we'll get into it in a minute, does it sound familiar? It's a continuation in the history of what's happening here. Ezra, this guy, Ezra, is a priest. He comes from the line, excuse me, he's a king. I mean, he's a priest. He comes from the line of Aaron. He comes from the line of Aaron. But we won't see Ezra, his name means helper, until chapter 7. He's not the main character yet. This main character is found over in verse 8. His name's Sheshbazar which I believe, and many scholars believe, is also the same as Zerubbabel. Two different names. His Persian name is Sheshbazar. Guess what that means? Write it down. Joy and affliction. And he is also named Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, by the way, he's the prince of Judah. 
Joy in affliction and stranger, his other name, name means stranger in Babylon. Now, there's a whole sermon there, folks, and we'll talk about that. He didn't get his heart and mind and spiritual life centered on his circumstances of where he was, which was in Babylon. Okay, now, time out. I know I'm going in circles. I'm going to try and bring this together for you. But before we go anywhere else, let's reorient ourselves in the Old Testament, and that's page two. I know it's chicken scratch. Just bear with me. Do you know this? That God prophesied that Judah would be taken captive by Babylon. God prophesied, listen, I gave you the dates, that's important. God prophesied several places, but you know, you could go to Isaiah 6, 11 through 12. That was prophesied in 739 BC that this place called Babylon would become a world power and they would come down and wipe out Judah. By the way, when does it happen? That's why it's so important. That's why this date is so important. Everything centers around this date in the Old Testament. The prophecy, Isaiah 6, happened in 739 B.C. Babylon actually wiped out Jerusalem in a third wave of attack in 586 B.C. So get that in your head. 739 B.C. and 586 B.C. So God is prophesying 150 years or so, whatever it is, uh, I'm not good at math, that Judah would be taken captive by this place, this people called Babylon. You can see it in chapter 11 and chapter 12. That was in 730 B.C., that prophecy. You can see it in chapter 39, 5 through 7. You can look at that later. That happened in 711 B.C. And this prophecy is fulfilled. That's what we went through <laughs> For a long, long time, in First and Second Kings, we, we did that, you know, at the beginning of the year. The prophecy was fulfilled. In 605 B.C., this king called Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon swoops down uh, into the area of Judah, and he takes out royal family and a lot of the vessels that were contained in the temple. That'll be important here in a minute. I promise, don't get glazed over. I promise you, if you'll get this for 10 minutes, this will have such an impact in your heart, you're, you're just going to melt. Okay, so three waves. The prophecies fulfilled. 605 B.C., they take some, but not all. 597 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar takes 7,000 men of might and 1,000 craftsmen. That's in 2 Kings 24, 10 through 16. You could go there and look, okay? That's why I gave you this sheet. But in 586 B.C. was the death blow. When Nebuchadnezzar destroys all of Jerusalem and the most important place in Jerusalem, the temple, just wipes it out. And oh, by the way, you go to Jerusalem now, you can see the temple stones knocked over uh, into uh, 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 the corner of the valley. Of course, that happened at a later date, 70 AD, but, but it's really interesting, okay, uh, when you get there. Destroys Jerusalem, the temple, and listen, and now this is the part that you need to know. Then the Jews are exiled. <laughs> Thus, we get the term pre-exile and post-exile, or pre-exilic or post-exilic, before or after. You get it? And now you know, and that is in, they are taken 
uh, there up into Babylon. And 2 Kings 25, 1 through 21, except the poor of the land, the weak, the sick, or the elderly who couldn't be the, you know, strong and all that sort of thing. Okay, now fast forward a little bit. 586 BC, he destroys Jerusalem and the temple, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, and takes the Jews to Babylon. It's 900 miles away, folks. It's not like you're going from Elizabeth to West Elizabeth or from Bethel Park to South Park. There's, it's 900 miles. It's a four-month trip. It's arduous. It's very difficult. Oh, by the way, who were some of the exiles up there? Daniel and Ezekiel. You ever heard of those prophets? right? Okay. I gave you a couple other name or dates here in my little chicken scratch, and the reason I'm doing it is because you got to know the players. You're like, okay, you get to Ezra, and you're like, well, where are the Babylonians? <laughs> they're, they're not here. They're gone. <laughs> There's some king named Cyrus of Persia. That's because in 539 or 538 BC, in chapter 5 of the book of Daniel, we see the Medo-Persians defeat the Babylonians in one night. That's where you get the famous writing on the wall. The king of Babylon is partying, not paying attention. And the Medo-Persians come in. You can go read it and swoop them up and take over. And now they become the world power. That's in Daniel 5, okay? Now that happens about one year before Cyrus, king of Persia, uh, who had, who, Persia, who had conquered Babylon, issued this decree right here that we're reading, 538 or 537 B.C. You see how I'm trying to orient you so you can be oriented where we are in the Bible? Okay, so in the first year, I'm reading from the Bible now of Ezra, first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Now, we got to take some time here for a second. What is fulfilled? Well, Jeremiah Jeremiah, look at this. I wrote it out for you. 25, 11, 7, and 29, 10. And look beside there on my notes. 25, chapter 25 and chapter 29 of the book of Jeremiah is written and the, the prophecy happens at about 588 BC. And I took a little line or an arrow and I drew it up there right before the third wave of attack by the Babylonians. You getting what I'm saying? Jeremiah prophesies about that, okay? Catch me? And that's about 50 years or so before Cyrus starts out in chapter 1. Just follow me for a second. I promise you're going to love this. What else happens? Cyrus's name, King Cyrus, we're going to look at it here in a minute, is actually prophesied about in the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, and I look at the date there, 711 B.C. is when chapter 24 happens, or excuse me, chapter 44 of Isaiah happens. Are you catching this? Listen to this, 150 years even before the king of Persia named Cyrus was born, Isaiah, through God, is given a prophecy saying that there's this guy named Cyrus, we'll read it here in a minute, from Persia, who's going to allow the Jews to come back in their land after Babylon. Okay, now let's read it so we can be astounded. Here's what we're going to read. First, we're going to read Jeremiah 25. Go there. If you don't know where Jeremiah is, go, just go in your table of contents. No big deal. Jeremiah 25, 
verses 11 through 17, I want you to know this. Know this, know this as a bedrock foundation. Here's what I want you to know. Why did Israel, or Judah get sent to Babylon? I want you to know that answer. Why is Judah even going to Babylon? Why did God send them to Babylon? God gives us the reason right here in 11 through 17 of chapter 25 of Jeremiah, the first one. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now, another little detour. I promise you're going to love it, though. The best book of the Bible, my favorite book. Not the best book. They're all good. Equally good. But I love this book, Leviticus. In the book of Leviticus, can you believe this? In the book of Leviticus, God tells us something in Leviticus 25, 1 through 7. He tells the nation of Israel to do something. He commands them to do it. Every seventh year, I don't want you to plant I want you to plant for six years. I want you to plant enough in the six years to handle two years. And I'll bless you in that seventh year. And I want you to rest, have it rest, the land rest. And guess what they did not do for 490 years? They never did it. And God is getting back the years that these people stole from him. Are you getting it? Here's our first principle. God will always find us out. If you think you're on your phone watching pornography and you won't get caught, you're wrong. If you think you're at the office and you're stealing from the boss or doing this and you won't get found out, you're wrong. God always finds out and rectifies it. He might not rectify it now, today, or tomorrow, but he'll find it out. He, he will find it out immediately, but you understand what I mean. God gets what's coming to him, and rightfully so. He should. Here, 70 years were owed because for 490 years, every seventh year, they didn't do as the Lord asked them to do. Then, verse 12 of Jeremiah 25, it'll come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of Chaldeans, for their iniquity, and I will make a perpetual uh, uh, desolation. So I will bring on that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations. Go back up, by the way, in verse 6. What was the other reason that God sent them to Babylon? Because they went after other gods to serve and worship them, and it provoked him to anger. Two reasons, two main reasons. They went after other gods. They cheated on the Lord. By the way, we do that. Anything where our affections for something or someone or some circumstance or whatever is higher than our affections for God, there you have an idol. So think about it. Where is it? There's phones here. People can't give up their phones, folks. Idol. Sports, I'm pointing at me, music, whatever. All these things, none of them bad in them of, of, of themselves, but they become idols in our lives. And guess what? We start, the Bible says, to look like our idols. So if we're, we love materialism and that's our idol, that's what we look like. You, you get it? Okay, these are the two things. How about turn over to chapter 29 of Jeremiah? Verses 10 through 14. 
For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. Can you believe it? He tells them, I'm going to take my 70 years back, but at the end of 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back into the land. He doesn't give up on them. I will visit and perform my good word, return to this place, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you. You love to say that verse? Well, this is the context in which it said, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you'll call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. This is fascinating. There's no evidence that Israel as a nation after the Babylonian captivity, went back into full-scale idolatry. It was as if God just said, oh, you want idolatry? I'm going to take you to the land of idolatry, and you're going to give me my 70 years back. And it did something to them, and it impacted them, and they didn't do it anymore. In the book of Corinthians, fascinating, it almost sounds evil. There was this guy, you remember this? He was living with his stepmom. And the Bible tells us that we were to, even if it hurts the flesh, give that such as one over to Satan. So what? What? It'll win his soul back. Something that they had to do that was harsh, excommunicate somebody from a church. Why? Not so we can say, yes, we know theology better than you, and you're a sinner worse than us, and we dress this way, and you should look that way, and off you go, and you should be out of here, and blah, blah, blah. No, it wasn't for that. They, the harshness was for a purpose of winning the person back spiritually. Same principle, you catching it? Problem is, churches don't do that anymore. Because <laughs> we want to be graceful, and we should be graceful. And I'm not advocating, I'm not looking for a fight or anything like that. But see, when people church hop and they don't stay there for all the time so that we can all, and in, in a good way, perform church discipline, well, there's no teeth to any of that. There's no teeth. The beauty can never happen. The beauty can never happen as long as we just hunt and peck and go around. Or as long as, you know, the leadership is harsh and wrong and inappropriate. But when it's done the way the Lord asks us to do it, it's beautiful and there's growth. Are you catching this? And we aren't even in the first verse. But, but I'm trying to orient you, but now I want to take you to Isaiah 44 and I want to read it. And then we'll start to dig through this. And I still think I'm going to get through chapter 3. Listen to this in chapter 44, verse 28 of the book of Isaiah, which was written in seven, or which happened in 711 BC. <laughs> verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd? Cyrus isn't even born yet, folks. Are you catching this? Who's, you know, maybe even as he's telling it to Isaiah, Isaiah's like, hmm, what's, what's happening here? I, 
Who's, that? Who's Cyrus? He is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Verse 1, chapter 45, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, and loose the armor of kings, to open uh, before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I'll go before you and make the crooked places straight. I'll break in pieces the gates of bronze, cut the bars of iron. I'll give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the the Lord who call you by your name and the God of Israel. He used Cyrus, a pagan king, to prove once and for all, if I can say it that way, that he was the Lord or is the Lord. Now come back with me to Ezra chapter 1. So the question becomes, listen to this, in the first year of Cyrus, that's 530 8 or 537 BC, right in that range, the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord, listen, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So most people believe, and this is how it had to happen, Cyrus was shown the book of Jeremiah, right? He was oriented like you've been oriented tonight. He must have been reading it and thinking, my goodness. In 588 BC, this guy Jeremiah was saying these things where Babylon was going to come and take them away, and then somebody had to have. There's no record of it in the Bible except for in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel knows, you can go and read it, that the 70 years are about ready to elapse. And guess what? Daniel's in exile, and he's in exile, and he's still living at the time of 538 B.C. So many people believe Daniel, who had a ministry to politicians, somehow got an audience with the king and opened up the Bible, Jeremiah, and showed him, and then showed him Isaiah. Now, if it wasn't Jeremiah, some people don't believe that. Somebody did it and showed this guy, Cyrus, that he was in the Bible, and look, his heart was stirred up. Do you know what that means? His heart was stirred up. Listen, this is important. I finally got out of the orientation stage. When we need stirred up, folks... Yeah, I get it. Everybody loves miracles, signs and wonders. I like to see those sorts of things too. I like to see all of that. But you know what's going to stir you up and bring you up and out and get you to do what you need to do? It's the Word of God. Jesus is the Word. It's the Word. It's the Word of God. I know that's not fashionable. What's fashionable is rock walls and thriving youth groups and great uh, singles groups, just and, and then married couples and all the things and all the bells and whistles. That's what most people think is going to solve their religious problem or their Christian problem. And the Bible tells us, it's everywhere in the Bible, that the thing that makes you most healthy and will stir you up is a constant, consistent intake of the Word of God and then, listen, trusting in Him through His Word. Not just consumers of the word, but doers of the word. That's what stirs us up. And here, look at this. It moved a king, a pagan king, to do what? 
He made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom. Here's the proclamation. Thus says Cyrus, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me. Look, he's calling upon the Lord God of heaven. He's, he's giving credit to his powerful kingdom, to the Lord God of heaven. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem. He saw the prophecies, which is in Jerusalem. He saw them. Uh, which is in Judah, excuse me, or, uh, house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among all of his people. May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord, God of Israel, in parentheses, he is God, <laughs> which is in Jerusalem. I mean, it's like he's like, wow, this prophecy blew me away. Boy, by the way, there's some extra biblical evidence that the kings of Persia were into prophecy whether they came from the Bible or not, they were always looking for prophecy. And when he saw this, it had a deep impact in him. So much so, he says, well, go back. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So think about it. He's giving the Jews who are exiles in Babylon who want to go back and worship at their temple, which there isn't a temple at the time. He's giving them the legal right and now the financial blessing to go back. <laughs> and we think God can't do it. We think if one party's in line or another party's in power or this, blah, 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 that God is frust purposes are frustrated, no way. There is no way. God can take the heart of a king in Babylon and turn it towards him. Of course, I know he's not a Babylonian. He's a Persian. But you understand, up in that area, he can, he can take it and turn it and do whatever he wants. Keep praying for the people of this nation and don't stop. And don't pray saying it can't happen. Whoever it is, wherever, whoever you believe, it can happen. Here, he turns these, and he even says, you give, be, be good givers. We're going to give financially. Then the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin, those are the two tribes from the southern kingdom. It's all coming together for you. And the priests and the Levites with all the, whose spirits God had moved, are you catching that? You know, there's this verse that he can uh, move us both to will and to do. That's in Philippians. That's in chapter 2. He can do, uh, move us both to will and to do. Isn't that beautiful? See, see, I'm learning more and more, aren't you? That the Lord gives you a vision, but then equips you for the vision. Are you catching that? You know, sometimes I think, wow, Lord, you've given me this fantastic vision. You know, I, I've just got to be honest. Sometimes I catch myself and I go, wow, what is it about me, Lord, you saw in me? Maybe you said that. <laughs> and the answer is, hey, bro, hey, Tim, I'm even going to not only change your will towards this, I'm going to give you the resource and the strength and the ability to do it if you'll just stay humble so you'll be teachable and that my grace can pour through in your weakness. And when you start thinking you're something or nothing, or something or, 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 or the other, you're so great, just that's dangerous territory. I'm nothing without the Lord. The Bible tells us we can do nothing without him. Nothing for eternity. 
Here, he, he gives them, listen, he gives them both, here's the letter, you can go do it. But then he moves them, listen, to go do the work to rebuild the temple. You catching it? Isn't that beautiful? Don't you want to just pray? Some, some of you folks here, seriously, some days you don't want to even get out of bed. You feel weak. Just like, gosh, I don't think I have it, man. I don't even know if I have it in life. Good. You're in the right spot. That's the place. Then you can just say, Lord, I don't have it. I'm so thankful I don't have it, nor do I need to have it. But you know what, Lord? You shine in and through me and give me the power, and we're going to go do it. Isn't that great? Well, here, they arose. God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them, listen, encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things besides all that was willingly offered. So I want you to catch this. So not only were the Jews giving money and stuff, the non-Jewish people were giving money (laughs) and stuff. The Word of God had an impact on a whole society. And now King Cyrus, verse 7, also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken. He had taken so many. If you go back to 2 Kings, uh, you'll you'll see uh, several places where he'd taken uh, goods out of the temple and put it in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath right? The treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Again, most people believe that Sheshbazar and the one we're going to encounter here in a minute, Zerubbabel, are one and the same. Some people don't believe that. Some people believe Sheshbazar was Zerubbabel's secretary. I'm of the camp that believes they're one and the same. He's the prince of of Judah, which means joy and affliction there in his Chaldean name. This is the number of them, 30 platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410, uh, uh, sorry, I lost my place, uh, 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, knives, uh, 410 silver basins of similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Sheshbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, do me a favor. Just look back here again one more time. Page 3. It looks like there's where they're going. I don't believe they're two different people, but there's two different routes there. It's from the Nelson's Book of Maps. If you don't have the Nelson's Book of Maps, get that book. What a study aid. Oh, it's so fantastic. But that's a long way, folks. That's a long way. And oh, by the way, uh, Ezra, uh, the writer of this book, which we believe to be Ezra for a number of different reasons, he never really tells you about the arduous 900-mile, four-month-long return. But what he does tell you, which is interesting to me, he doesn't write it out and tell you how awful and terrible it was. Guess what he does tell you about, though? He tells you, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, about the people who actually traveled. And most people, when they get to this in their one-year Bible, going straight through like everybody should, not deviating, not jumping ahead, not nothing, going straight through, and they get to Ezra, they come to this chapter, and they blow it off because it's just a number of a num, uh, an accounting of names. But let's not blow it off. Let's think about this for a minute. Now, these are the people, chapter 2, of the province 
who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon. And now when you read that phrase, don't you know? Here's what you know. Maybe you don't remember the dates, but you remember in three waves, Babylon took out Judah. Three waves, and the final waves, the knockout punch, was in 586 B.C. Don't you know that now? So when you read that, you go, oh, okay, I'm oriented. Of those who'd been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to uh, Babylon, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, and now you've got a, a little chart to show you what the route was like, 900 miles, four months. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. Those who came with Zerubbabel, were Joshua, that's really Joshua, Yeshua, Joshua. He's the high priest. Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, listen to this, are going to be the star of the show from chapter 1 through chapter 6. Catch that? Okay, hold on with me. So now you got these two, Zerubbabel and Joshua, and they've got this guy named Nehemiah. It's not the same Nehemiah that comes and writes the, the books about. Different Nehemiah. Sariah, Rila, Mordecai, not the same Mordecai as in Esther. Bilshan, Mispar, Bigva, Reham, Bena. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the people of Perash, 2,172. Uh, the people of Sheptia, 372, etc., etc. Uh, go through verse 7. Uh, go through uh, verse 9. Go all the way to verse 15, 18. Go all the way down. Keep going down. You get down to Verse 34, and the people of Jericho, 345. You can read all of those, but I want you to see something. Why did they put that there? Number one, they're showing you that strong leadership, good, strong, godly leadership is important for the people of God. That's number one. Number two, I think, is another thing. They're talk telling you how, and you can read it, you read it yourself, from chapter or verse 3 through verse 20, there's 18 Jewish families, 18 Jewish families. I think what they're telling you here is how important family is in leadership. Now, now you say, well, wait a minute. I don't know about my family. <laughs> okay, well, that's okay, because the Lord has something for that. Remember this to the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. He said to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And then he throws something else in. You know what he throws in? And your house, your family. Hebrews 11:7. right? Noah prepared an ark to save his family. Remember that? You say, well, wait a minute. I'm not sure about my family. Well, do something with me. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. <laughs> Here's what I think. Families are important in the leadership of the nation of God, of the family of God. God sets up families. You say, well, my family I don't know about so much. I came on late or in, into the family of God late and I didn't. What, what do I do? Well, here, the answer is in Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, you know this, refusing to be comforted for her children because they're no more. Thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for 
for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord. Here, here it comes. And really, we only need to read verse 15. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. I think that's something that we need to hold on. You say, well, wait a minute. What are you saying here? I'm saying to God, family is important. It helps to establish the leadership in the church and healthy people. And you say, well, my family's not healthy. It's dysfunctional. Well, folks, every family has dysfunction in it. Just so you know, we're all sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. But we do what the Lord calls us to. And I want you to know that you keep living your life for Jesus Christ in the sweetest, most possible way in grace and truth and hold on to these promises that your house will be saved. And you say, well, wait a minute, but my mom or my brother or whatever, my son, my daughter, they're in enemy territory, then you hold on to Jeremiah 31. And again, you never stop praying. You keep praying and you have people pray for them and you pray and you pray and you expect and you pray and you keep praying so that that one will be reclaimed from enemy territory. Jesus said some folks, some of the, these things that we pray about, they can't even come out except by fasting and praying. If it's something that's so concerning, fast and pray for those. And don't give up. So here, you have all of these families. Families are important. You say, well, my family isn't. Well, the Lord knows we're all dysfunctional in some way. Keep praying, keep loving, keep serving, keep growing, keep sharing. Well, what does he do next? He sends priests. He sends priests. Actually, he sends volunteers before that, but uh, in 21 through 35, he sends volunteers. But then in 36, he sends priests. By the way, we know from the Old Testament that there were 24 priestly divisions. Guess how many priestly divisions returned in the exile? Four. You can read them right here. Jedidiah, Immer, Pasher, and Haram. Okay? There are the priests. Now you say, well, wait a minute. Levites are up there. But remember, Levites, of which priests come out of that tribe. They're from the tribe of Levi through the brother Aaron or the, the high priest Aaron. Levites aren't necessarily priests. There's ones who serve in the sanctuary or the temple in the temple area. So you had Levites too. Why would they send priests and Levites? Why would that be important? To reestablish what God had asked them to do in the law, right? Okay, hold on with me. The singers, isn't that fascinating? The sons of the gatekeepers, the Nephanim, it's not... They're not giants, folks. This is from Joshua 9, Nethanim. Joshua 9. There was this story in Joshua 9 where the Gibeonites were afraid of the Israelites and they faked like they had come a long way and they put on some old clothes and they went over there and said, hey, we came a long way and we need to make a pact with you. And Joshua made a pact with them and he made a mistake and they found out later they were Gibeonites who lived next door to him. And he went, oh my goodness, okay, I'm going to hold my word, but guess what you're going to do? You're going to cut wood and you're going to carry water. Hold on. Think about that. I just want you to think about that for a minute. Can you imagine? Wait a minute. We made a pact, and now you're making me cut wood and carry water? Never says that they complained. And here, the Lord said, those people are important. They serve faithfully. 
Maybe they didn't have all their theology together at the beginning, but they came in and they loved and they served and they carried wood and they hauled water and here they are to reestablish the temple. Now the sons of Solomon, they also worked near the temple. That's verse uh, 55. And these were the ones who, listen, verse 59, you can read all about all of these people. Verse 62, these, sought their, these people sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but they weren't found. I want you to know this scripture. I might only get through one chapter. <laughs> but but listen therefore listen they didn't they couldn't prove their genealogy so they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled they couldn't let them in because god had said they must be if a priest from the tribe of or from the line of aaron right so they had to prove their genealogy and the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till a priest could consult with the urim and the thum and that was the stuff that was on the breastplate either stones or sticks that said yes or no lights and perfections but here's the point here's the point here's the point in order to be effective and healthy and whole and participating in the family of God just to be moving in the same direction as the family of God, you know what you must be convinced of? Who you are as a child of God. You must be convinced. What did, what did that famous uh, apologist said when they asked him, what would be the key to, if, if, I forget the guy's name, it starts with a K, but anyway, what would be the key if you could just preach and teach this one, one theme for the rest of your life? Uh, that you've seen as you've gone through all of these apologetic conferences and all that sort of thing. I'm going blank on the name. I'll, I'll think of it as I'm going. And you know what he said? <laughs> um, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. That we would all know that we are children of God. In order to be leading and effective and healthy and whole, listen to this, if we could in just that, the Bible tells us in Romans 8.16 that our spirit communes with the spirit to tell us that he's our Abba and that you're a child of God. When people become convinced and know and certain that they're really God's child, it makes such a big difference and they become effective and they come in and they move and they grow and they help to set up and they help to build. You understand that? That's where health comes from. It comes by reading the word of God. Well, here, the whole assembly together was 42,060 uh, besides their male and female servants of whom there were 7,337. Then they listened to this and they had 200 men and women singers. Their were 736, their mules, their camels, their donkeys, 6,720. Some of the heads of the father houses, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. According to their ability, they gave to the treasure for the work 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly. So the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gator, and the nethanim dwelled in their cities and all Israel in their cities. Now listen. I'm going fast, I know, but not fast enough, apparently. <clears throat> this comes up to about 49,000, almost 50,000. Did I just go out there? Can you hear me? Uh, okay, 49,000, 50,000. Guess how many Israelites, Jewish people, were in Babylon? Two million.
you see it? They got comfortable. Why? You know they went from a, a, an agrarian society to the extra-biblical accounts tell us they became merchants and commerce makers up there in Babylon, and it became real comfortable. They got nice houses, they got nice cars, they got nice carts, they got nice donkey. you understand? They got nice clothes, they got a big bankroll, and it was comfortable. Who would want to go back uh, 900 miles in four months? Who would want to do that and give it all up? and re Nah. And you know what? There's some indication that they kept going up there, uh, trying to worship the Lord. But you understand, the more people get comfortable, are you understanding this? There's not even bad stuff that they're even doing, maybe. They're still being productive citizens, but there's no zeal for the Lord and what He really wants you to do. And so only 50,000 come back out of 2 million in the place that's the ultimate place of idol worship as opposed to the place where God resides at the temple. Are you catching that? One other thing here. Listen to this. I, I referred to it at the beginning. Lists. Why is the Lord doing this? I think I might have. Thank goodness I'm not the Lord or the Holy Spirit. I think I might have detailed that arduous, difficult task coming back from Babylon. But he didn't. He wrote about people and families, and we skip by it in our one-year reading or our two-year Bible plan. We skip by it. But I want you to know something. Look at these verses. God is into these lists in the Bible. Do you know in Hebrews 6, verse 10, that it tells us that God remembers our ministry and our good works? God remembers your ministry and your good works. The things that are done for him, he remembers and knows. You know this, right? In Revelation, there's this thing called the Lamb's Book of Life. He records it. He records all of those. Those who surrender their life to Jesus Christ, he records them in the Lamb's Book of Life. You know that. God's in the lists. But here's something so fantastic. If you want to go there, go there. Uh, in Malachi 3, 16. Go to Malachi 3.16. Read this now. Listen. Put on your thinking cap those here. Then those who feared the Lord, do you fear the Lord? Do you fear the Lord? Do you have a healthy respect and reverence for the Lord? Do you fear the Lord? Those who feared the Lord, listen to this, spoke to one another. And the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord, listen, and who meditate on his name. I, I just got to say this. Erase this off the tape. Okay, sorry, he can't. When we first got to Pittsburgh, we went to a church and we went to a picnic. And we were just starving for fellowship. We'd been at this awesome church in Honolulu, and we just da 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 and it was, we just, and I'm writing down cassette tapes. We would go through cassette tapes. We had this awesome group of people, fellowship, and, and when we got together for a picnic in Honolulu, we, did, we didn't talk about the ocean or the beach. 
People were talking about the Lord. I mean, it wasn't really me. They were talking about the Lord and what the Lord was doing and what the Lord and this and that and that. And it was awesome. And so we checked out a ton of churches, went to a couple picnics and stuff like that. And we'd come home and we'd be like, man, it's kind of sad. Nobody talked about the Lord, including me. I'm not just blaming them. You get what it's saying right here? When we get together and we talk about the Lord and the things that he's doing, he writes it down. He records it. God's into recording. This matters. What we say, what we think, what we do, it matters. And he records it. Now listen, I'm late, so I'm going to only going to be able to do one. I should have listened to Mike Young. He told me to say Ezra 1. I told him, no, Ezra 1 through 3. Mike was right. I was wrong. But I want you to see something here. What is, why is Ezra so important? Well, Ezra is so important because it's a link in the historical portion of the Old Testament. But I want you to see something else. What is Ezra saying to you in 2021? Because the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that the Old Testament are types and shadows of, of the reality on this side of the cross. Okay, so what's, what's, what, I want you to think about this. What's Ezra saying? Well, Ezra's saying this. For those who've never surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ, they're in the world of Babylon. <laughs> and when they're called and they respond to that call, they can come into the family of God, right? And we're going to see as we move along here, what should they do? As uh, fundamentals, I don't know what else, just the, the bear, what, what should they do when they come into the family of God? But oh, before we get too high and mighty, what about us who've slipped away and we start mingling at the wrong places, in the dark places, or on the wrong phone, or at the wrong website? We're doing stuff in secret in the dark that we think nobody knows about, and then all of a sudden, boom, we get found out. And you know that feeling when you get found out. You go, whoa, am I ever welcome back into the family of God? Listen, the Lord said to Israel, you're going to pay me for those 70 years, but you're coming back. The Lord's saying to us when we do that, you might have been doing those things, but we're going to bring you back through repentance and faith and trust and a turning back from those things, getting the idols out of your life, and you're going to come back to God. And that's why Ezra's so big. Because we have a whole culture of Christians that aren't living a victorious Christian life. And we think now, it's so sad, we think the victorious Christian life is for people like George Mueller and, uh, you know, uh, who am I thinking of? Give me some others. But any greats of the faith, right? Tozer. It's only for those guys who write these books. No, no, no. You know this, the victorious Christian life is for each one of us. And here, Ezra gives us the principles about either coming to the Lord for the first time or coming back to the Lord, which is what they were doing. So 
We're going to close. It's 8.19. <laughs> I didn't get as far as I wanted to. Oh, I got chapter 2. Okay, I'm two-thirds of the way through. I'm chapter 2. Uh, and we'll start uh, uh, next week as we, uh, the worship is restored at Jerusalem. But I want you to do this. I, I, just, I just feel like this is the book for us right now. I want you to just meditate on these things and think on these things all week. As you keep reading ahead here, we're going to do Ezra, we're going to do Nehemiah, and we're going to do Esther. And as we go out, I just want you to remember this. The Lord cares about us. He cares about our families. He cares about the priests. He cares about the people who deliver the message. But you know something else? Listen, listen, listen. He cares about the ones who carry the water. The water boys. The water girls. They're no different. They're no, we're all one in Christ. We're all important in the body. And he cares for us. So let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you so much. And uh, <laughs> I had ambition, Lord, to get through that. But you, you just, in this book, Lord, all those years ago, written through the Holy Spirit by Ezra, Lord, there's so many things that are applicable to our lives. And I just pray, Lord, that as we move out from here, we remember so many things. Uh, that we've just learned tonight, that you care for us, that as we learn this history of the Old Testament, we uh, get to that place where we recognize we're children of God and you've gone to all these lengths to get us into the family, which means we matter to you in a big way, Lord. And I pray that each one of us know that we're loved and that we're children of God in Christ so that as we go out and move through these doors and we love a hurting and dark world, Lord, by your power and by your might, we wouldn't be discouraged, especially in this environment. Lord, help us never to write, we're sick of 2020. <laughs> we, we are sick of 2020, but Lord, help us to be ones who shine in the darkest places. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.